Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network's Middle East Studies podcast. I'm Ruben Silverman, a researcher at Stockholm University's Institute for Turkish Studies, and with me today is Ilkem Bouke Okyar. Dr. Bouke Okyar is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science and International Relations at Yeditepe University. Today, we will be discussing her first book, Arabs in Turkish Political Cartoons, 1876 to 1950. National Self and Non-National Other, published in 2023 by Syracuse University Press. Now, before we get into the details of the book, I always like to start these interviews by asking a little bit about the author. So, uh, Professor Bukayokar, if you could talk about your background a bit, how did you become interested in the Ottoman Empire and Turkish history, and why cartoons in particular? Hi, Ruben. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Um, Well, in terms of answering your question, first of all, I'm a political scientist by training. Um, I received my bachelor's in political science from University of California, Riverside. However, in my graduate and advanced graduate studies, my focus actually shifted towards regional studies uh, with multidisciplinary approaches. In my language proficiencies in Turkish, French, English, and Ottoman Turkish also pointed me towards emphasizing the Levant um, and adding the benefit of being literally on the field. I actually pursued my PhD in the Middle East Studies at Bangalore University of Negev in Israel. Um, in terms of uh, focusing uh, my book, uh, Actually, uh, in uh, in terms of Ottoman and Turkish history, well, basically, it wasn't really my intention at the beginning. Um, my book is actually about the everyday production of boundaries between self and other. Uh, in other words, everyday production of ethnicities and their manifestations in stereotypes. And the ethnic stereotypes are still relevant in today's context with rising nationalist tendencies under the popular government. And especially in the case of Turkey, we see that the influx of Syrian refugees following the events of 2011, for example, revived these deeply embedded perceptual boundaries in the minds of the Turkish public and created a negative public reflex against the displaced immigrants. Uh, you can easily see in the social media platforms, which are used to spread hate speech, discrimination, racism, and otherization. Even a survey conducted um, later in the tw- uh, 20s by a prominent Turkish university showed that Turks actually do not welcome the presence of Syrians, whom they call Arab refugees, and demonize them, often as scapegoats for Turkey's economic and social problems. Today, actually, uh, when we look at it, another, for example, another critical discourse analysis on the mainstream newspapers uh, for a period of two years disclosed that the Syrian refugees are almost always represented with this negative connotation on their Arabness, regardless of the underlying sources or the causes of the events. And the reality on the ground is that approximately, you know, half of the Syrians today in Turkey want to go to a country other than Syria and Turkey. And this is not only a byproduct of failed temporary protection and integration policies of the government and unevenly distributed precarity in the economic milieu, but also a result of similar types of ideological, ethnic and religious sectarianism that is deeply rooted in both refugee and host communities in Turkey. And within this relational construction, ethnic stereotyping stereotyping served as a structuring principle for the national process, both in terms of physically and imaginatively defining the boundaries of the nation and the constituents of national identity. Uh, defining ethnicity and nationalism in uncontroversial ways is probably an impossible task. Yet these are vitally important topics in the structuring of the political affecting the affect- and affected by the various social and economic cleavages and characteristics, the nature of the state and its degree of democratization, and politics for economic development and human rights protection. 
So focusing on these two major concepts, namely ethnicity and nationalism, uh, my work assumed first that both are socially constructed identities with their blueprints embedded in the cultural history, in this case, the Ottoman and Turkish history, which are subject to change in, in interaction with group morphology, group advantage or disadvantage, political organization and institutional rules. And secondly, ethnicity is politicized in only some cases, but nationalism has an inherent political component. So within that sense, my work's main frame basically is thus the set against the construction and politicization of ethnic identities. In other words, Turks as national self and Arabs as non-national other. And needless to say, one's accumulated perception of the other plays a significant role in the shaping of these social, economic, and political confrontations. So again, my book once more brings to attention the ethnic and cultural stereotypes. And I believe that understanding the sources of these stereotypes is significant to come to terms with the national sentiments towards a more pluralistic, multicultural society. And this is basically the main aim of my book, and it is how actually the whole journey started. And for sure, political cartoons function best in their contribution to producing ethnosymbolic images and stereotypes, uh, and in a unique form of conquest and domination of other, these recycled stereotypes serve as a foundation that connect past and present, ethnic myths and their modern translation, into viable, coherent identities and political political programs, mm. basically. Well, so then throughout the book, you're showing how these stereotypes change of Arab people, first in the Ottoman Empire and then in the Republic of Turkey. Now, even before printing and cartoons become widespread, you look at puppet theater or cargos and how Arabs are shown in that. So during this this... Ottoman imperial era where there's all these different mm, ethnicities uh, in the Ottoman Empire. How were Arab peoples represented in this puppet theater? Maybe you can talk a little bit about what Karagos was. Um, I'd love to hear that. Of course, I would love that. You know, I can never stop talking about that, but it's one of my favorite subjects as well. But um, the ethnic and racial boundaries that separate the national from the non-national mostly reside in the minds of their subjects rather than some kind of written form. So the notion of the other has been an integral part of nationalist doctrine where the existence of South presupposes the existence of the other. So the discourse of nationalism and national identity is, with its simplistic and biased definition, the distinction between the in-group and those belonging to other communities, the others. However, this is not like a new story, it's another new narrative. Humans tend to create an image of reality with the help of culturally shared symbolic components that are embraced directly through learning or indirectly through society which they live in. Uh, and stereotypes are indispensable part of that creation. And for centuries, they have been source of various actions and behaviors, sometimes creating laughter through mockery and sometimes creating conflict through discrimination. Although the images of the other do not reflect the related identities in general, they constitute the identifications highlighted through numerous symbols. And these symbols are often seen as unconscious, mental constructed, surplus cultural differences. So within that framework, actually, I start digging these images, the images, the earliest images of the Arabs, actually, which led me to the Karagos place. So the earliest images of the Arabs, actually, with their custom mannerism and attributes are tricked. It can easily be traced back to the characters of the famous Ottoman Shadow Theater. Uh, which actually for more than 2,000 years evolved in within the Anatolian Peninsula, which stood as one of the main paths for travelers between Asia and Europe. Of course, it, must be, it might be very difficult to trace one by one these layers to the point of distinguishing the exact cultural tinges. However, their collective blueprints survived in early Anatolian peasant festivals, sometimes as folk dances and sometimes as timeless dramas. 
and the urge to imitate human action as part of the entertainment uh, was developed as part of these peasant festivities at first. And later they formed the first practices of what we today call the theaters. And shadow theater was one of these enduring entertainment forms of the Turkish culture after it entered to empire's gate uh, alongside of Yavuz Sultan's Selim uh, following the first decade of the 16th century. Karika's shadow theater originated in Jaffa initially um, centuries ago, quickly became so popular that both civil and religious authorities began to fear the prestige it enjoyed among the public. And the reason behind its attractiveness, as opposed to other forms of entertainment, are open to discussion, of course. But for one thing, in the realm of the empire, its performers provided laughter and critique to their spectators from various segments of the cultural and social hierarchy, creating an alternative public space, a bubble actually isolated from the verdict of the official and religious orders. And within that small piece of cotton cloth, uh, there were moments of freedom to humor the unhumorable and ridicule the self-important and critic the divine. Uh, within that terms, the character screen with its script and characters was all about symbolism. The stage itself represented the quarter of the capital, a neighborhood which was actually in the Ottoman culture, these centers of, uh, the quarters actually function as the center of the social and economic life. And they are separated from each other with ethnic boundaries. And in this neighborhood, let's say, which was very much represented in the screens of this puppet theater, there was to a certain extent an independent control over everyday happenings, community solidarity, and many informal ways to regulate and direct the public morality. So with its symbolic realism, the stage actually embraced similarities and the differences among the various people living together. And the plots were the reflection, reflections of typical events that took place in the streets of the capital. And the characters were basically the images of stereotypes that live in the city. So the culture of these quarters was conceived as a microscope representing the empire's, empire's capital, Istanbul, namely, and the entirety of the empire at the same time. Uh, whether they resided in or passed by the, these quarters or the neighborhood, the representation of Karagos plots were part of the Ottoman cultural heritage rooted in this very culture of the capital. So these portrayals were, you can actually call them as the two-dimensional representations of their geographic, social, cultural, religious, and even economic backgrounds. The characters of Karagos plays, both those who were ridiculed and those who were praised, were chosen among the inhabitants of the city that most commonly interacted with the locals. Yet, unlike provincial Turks, the imperial outsiders, you know, those coming from the outlying provinces, displayed more problematic personalities in their relations with the inhabitants of the quarter. So within that framework, the Arabs in Karagos place actually constitute a very, very special place. Uh, and also, it, they actually stand as a very tricky figures. First of all, they are the oldest character in the Ottoman Kargas Sheto theater after the main characters. Secondly, Arabs is Arab is the only character that was represented in within its racial formulation. The common portrait of the Arab characters in Karagos plays uh, was more complex and elaborate than that the other characters such as the Albanian, the Persian, or the Greek. They didn't have one specific mode of depiction. Uh, after all, in the 17th and 18th centuries, Arabs were as much part of the Ottoman world as the Kurds, Turks, and the Armenians. And although the word Arab itself was mainly used to signify sub-Saharan African in Ottoman and later Turkish folk language, the figures in Karagos were portrayed within two different sets of images and in two different typologies. 
emphasizing this difference, the characters are separated based on their skin tone. On one hand, we had the white Arab, the Akarab in Turkish, and on the other hand, the unqualified term, uh, term Arab, which referred to as the black Arab, a sub-Saharan Arab. So as much as this racial uh, connotation, the difference between these two figures actually um, was underlined by their social status and personal characteristics as well. When we look at the white Arab, he was always depicted and perceived as an outsider coming from the Levant or Mesopotamia. Uh, he was actually a bypasser. He, was, he didn't belong to the quarter. Uh, he was either selling the sweets, grinding coffee, begging for money, and especially this figure of Arab beggar were quite common at the center of the capital, especially in the 16th century, or bargaining carpets. And his Muslim identity, which carried the essence of the Prophet's lands, seemed to work as a shield for him in the multicultural metropole in a self-deceiving manner of being able to con the inhabitants of the neighborhood. Yet in the place, his untrustworthy character always reveals itself. For example, Arab beggar promises a prayer for a charity. And as soon as he receives the donation, he starts murmuring something in Arabic, which turns out to be a cursing instead of a praying. And the similar anecdotes actually like this, like these, um, stereotype the white Arab as dishonest and deceitful outsider in most of the almost all of the Karagos plays, actually, where Arab, the white Arab is depicted. The black Arab, on the other hand, is a completely different story. Being brought to the empire as slaves uh, from Sapsara, they actually become part of the household. Uh, they are well accepted by the inhabitants of the quarter, uh, the symbolic quarter, let's say, within the colonial limitations of racial superiority. In the plays, we actually see them very much depicted as uh, with their na naive nature to the level of stupidity, yet they're always referred to with their loyal characters to the household. So they are actually accepted as part of the community. They, are, they take their place within that communal solidarity. This perception of the Black Arab in the Ottoman social discourse actually remains all the way to the 1930s, and we will be seeing that kind of changing or transforming after the 1930s, but I'm just going to leave it here for the moment. Yeah, no, I think this is a good place to move from talking about these earlier depictions to how these depictions change once they're in cartoons. So maybe we can combine a, two questions here that I was thinking of. One, which is, Perhaps we can talk about the sort of publications that were featuring cartoons in the mid to late 1800s, and also where they, these cartoonists were drawing inspiration and stylistic um, techniques from when they were coming up with these depictions. Uh, that might be a good way to think about this yeah. topic. Um, well, first of all, the press entered the empire quite late. Uh, and didn't show a significant leap forward, actually, until the second half of the 19th century. We see little movements like, uh, like trials of newspapers, like in 1931 with the Takvim Vekai, the calendar of the events, which was totally under the initiative of the Sultan himself, and the Sultan at the time was Mahmoud II. And it was a decade later followed with another initiative again, Jevideye uh, Havadis, Register of the News, again published. Actually, this started as a more like a private uh, entity by an English resident of the empire, William Churchill. However, later on, it was subsidized by the state and eventually turned into a semi-official gazette quickly. But none of these really integrated lithography in the sense that Europe did. And lithography is, of course, is, is a technique which actually helps the press to publish illustrations in a way, other than just the printed news. But once they actually uh, started to be adopted in Europe, the lithography as a technique, again, that was about the mid 19th uh, towards the mid 19th century, it wasn't really too late for the Ottoman publishing uh, to adopt 
the very same technique. So we see its first signs in, the, in a privately uh, published newspaper, uh, Ali Rashid and Philip Efendiler's publishing a newspaper called Terakki Progress. And very quickly afterwards, uh, I think they do publish that in 1968. And in the 1970s, they actually come up with a supplement to the to this newspaper, which is entirely dedicated to ridiculing the Ottoman public through visual and literary commentaries. So basically, this is the very first time in the 1970s we start seeing the political cartoons uh, as a means of political communication in a way. Terakke Ilancesi comes as a as kind of like the a supplementary to the main uh, newspaper, actually uh, having reserving one full page for the political cartoons only. And the change in social life of the public throughout the Ottoman modernization dominated uh, at the time uh, both the literary and the visual content of this periodical. Uh, Very similar to Karagil's shadow plays, pointedly satirized the social and political commentaries of their time, uh, illustrated satire press actually initiated by Terakki Eylencesi also created a platform for daily critiques on diverse subjects from gender relations to the economy and to a certain extent to the politics of the Sultanate. So these combined influences of literary and visual communication actually fused the formation of alternative Ottoman popular culture space in line with political satire and the political cartoons. And in the early 1880s, nearly another decade later, the satire press actually strengthened its position as a political force under the rule and against the despotism of Abdul Hamid II. Quickly, actually, it became the medium for opinion-making, political indoctrination, and lastly, the, the, the dissemination of the news. So this strong position of the satire press, especially the political cartoons, created a concern in the upper scales of the palace, where actually their bite was soon tampered, which resulted in strict censorship regulations. So, of course, this the introduction of the satire press, the political cartoons into the Ottoman press, created a series of artists introduced a series of artists, which is interesting, actually, that a political cartoon artist or the political cartoonist did not go through an educational process. For example, most of the famous political cartoonists at the time in the early, late 1800s, let's say, they were not really educated as the artists themselves, they were pretty much like the intellectuals of their times. And most of them actually were members of the Young Turk movement who actually positioned themselves as part of the opposition to Abdul Hamid's uh, regime. Uh, And most of them actually were exiled or banished to Europe at the time. So it's almost inevitable to uh, think that they were not influenced or were not under the influence of the political cartoonists or their colleagues in Europe, uh, the influence of their colleagues' uh, counterparts in Europe. So stereotypes, when we talk about the stereotypes, they're about the other races uh, that that are common in popular culture of nations that are engaged in colonial expansion. And 19th century Europe was overwhelmed, of course, with the encounters of these different cultures. Um, Their concern with the study of the other within the colonial domain became a significant part of the documentation of racial differences around the concept of uh, polygenism and as a conclusion and emergence of colonial stereotyping. The stereotypes of different cultures, primarily the Orient, provided a convenient guide for quickly and efficiently knowing the unknowable, feeding the curiosity about the other civilizations, and so on. So, however, with the emerging imperial competition of the 19th century, these stereotypes actually provided their users with a form of authority over events and people beyond their control 
offering a sense of security in changing world order and tool for state propaganda. Um, the Oriental theater gazing beyond the Ottoman capital was designated around a specific set of symbols upon which various artistic disciplines were built onto cast. Western cartoonists in their depiction of the Orient invoked specific typecast about the Oriental physiognomy, appearances, behavior, and language. And these characteristics were actually accompanied frequently with geographically specific references such as desert, landscape, palm trees, trees exotic architectures uh, such as minarets or the crescent, and finally with desert animals, especially camels. And entering the 20th century, symbolic pronunciation of the European Orient were no, no longer the romantic ones. Now their purpose actually was proven to give a sense of inferiority and subjugation to the unknown. The civilized world's burden to deliver modernization to the uncivilized and barbaric people of the Ottoman lands was pretty much the cliche of the Ottoman, uh, of the Orientalist discourse, yet it carried a sense of correctness in its representation to the ordinary people. After all, um, the symbols that define the Orient were uh, predominantly developed with regards to the binary oppositions emerged from the colonial experiences. The cruelty, cruelty and despotism, the intoxicated indolence and the sexual fantasies were repeatedly introduced in the dominant themes of these lands, which actually provided the negative mirror image of Europe's political, economic, cultural and Christianity, social and uh, ethical norms. And many of the same perceptions of the Oriental others have easily survived in the intervening century, expanding their borders into the brushes of the Ottoman political cartoonists, especially the young Ottoman intellectuals who were expelled to Europe. And they are mesmerized, actually, with the nationalist endeavors and the eager to carry their own Orientalist position against the empire's Arab provinces, often pointing the Arabs as the scapegoat of the failing empire. And the Ottoman intellectuals in Europe depicted their views by taking into account the stereotypes that were equally present in European political cartoons, because those images were the ones actually that embody uh, the, the Ottoman cartoonist's imagination of the Orient in general and Arabader in particular. So the outcome was nothing but basically the Ottoman Orientalism in its cruelest sense. As in Usama Makdisi's verse, the multifaceted Ottoman positions were constructed by the 19th century Ottoman reforms that implicitly and explicitly acknowledged the West as the home of progress and the East is perceived from the capital Istanbul, of course, to present the theater of backwardness. Like the Crimean War and the following military and political humiliation created an immense pressure on the Ottoman Sultan, both from inside and outside. And while the Ottoman Empire actually has never been subjected to colonial rule as India and Africa did, it had been actually colonized, nonetheless, by the European culture, mostly by the French. Indeed, actually, Paris very quickly became the intellectual mecca for Ottoman cartoonists. And the, uh, to use the term colonized here, actually, which I adopted from Palmyra Brumet, uh, for the cultural movements, maybe, to an extent problematic since the selective adaptation of styles from various Eurasian cultures had been part of the Ottoman elite culture long before the 19th century. In the case of the Ottoman political cartoon production, especially in Europe, the cultural and symbolic domination of French graphic art was undeniable. The illustration techniques and symbolisms used by the urban intellectuals in the late 19th and early 20th century political cartoons were actually the mere imitations adopted from contemporary Europe that melted down to the Ottoman context. Of course, um, Karagos' shadow theater, with its long-established roots in Ottoman culture, provided the Ottoman cartoonists with a great resource of homegrown symbols, in fact, traditional characters and the mascots were quite fundamental 
in providing the audience with a familiar face and voice uh, which they could actually trust. Nonetheless, they were actually incompetent in delivering the necessary implication for transferring contemporary liberal ideas. Symbols of freedom, liberty, you know, constitution and civilization and their contrasting concepts such as slavery, oppression and barbarism dominated the European cultural domain through persistent visual repetition. This very same set of symbols which reduced this contemporary national concepts of good us and versus the evil them seemed like the missing piece for the young Turk cartoonists who were actually ambitious in shaping their society and reforming the Abdulhamid the Sultan's autocracy to a modern and civilized government. The European political cartoons in that sense actually provided this strong-willed Ottoman intellectuals with a range of visible signs that will both help them bypass the severe censorship of the ruling government and to transfer their vision uh, of a better future through humor. For one thing, Ottoman political cartoonists were not innovators, um, that I can tell. And within the spirit of the time, both the European and the Ottoman cartoonists actually uh, they commonly exchange techniques and practices in their illustrations. In a twisted way, actually, this ex- exchange pro- provided a sense of continuity, uh, a sense of connection among these intellectuals and artists with similar ideologies, even after the uh, Abdulhamid's uh, despotic period. For example, I can give you an example from a very famous publication, uh, Kalem, was published in 1911, uh, where actually we can follow this exchange, uh, this technique, uh, technical, the copy-paste exchange between the European and the Ottoman uh, intellectuals, which provided the sense of continuity. For example, as Rigopoulos, at the time, the famous cartoonist of Kalem, depicts the finance minister of the time, the Halil Menteşe, in the form of a peer, the fruit, which is exactly the same technique as Charles Flippon, Flippon actually in, in the uh, mid-1900, almost like half a century ago, depicted Louis XIV uh, in his critic uh, of the king. So you can see all these resemblances and, uh, and sometimes to the extent of, as I said, the copy-paste resemblances between the European and the Ottoman cartoonists. Um, So there is a great sense of influence between these two groups. Well, so once this group of young cartoonists who's involved in the opposition to Abdul Hamid, involved in the Young Turk movement, once the Young Turk movement has its revolution in 1908, there's a period of press freedom, and you're, you've started to talk about this with some of these examples you're giving. Um, and yet, during this period of freedom, there's a bunch, there's a lot of hostility towards Abdul Hamid's regime, and especially towards the uh, Arab officials who surround him. So maybe we can talk a little bit about this, um, the cartoons, the images, the stereotypes that emerged during this particular time period, a bit. Yeah, well, um, as you know, Abdul Hamid's reign is quite a despotic one, and it's really um, um, his policies and so on, they are not really well received uh, in Europe. There is this huge bitterness towards his reign, and that was very much infused among this, you know, expelled uh, young Turk uh, cartoonist in, in Europe as well. And the image of Abdul Hamid during this time becomes quite um, bitter in Europe, which actually ends up with kind of a civilization, a mission civilatrice, you know, um, 
within the empire at the time as part of an image building against, you know, Abdul Hamid's Western counterparts. Um, the part of this mobilization campaign involved the emergence of Arab communities of the empire into the axis of the palace. And it was aimed to be achieved by means of education and bureaucracy. Um, Abdul Hamid actually thought that the way that he was perceived as backward and barbaric was pretty much related to the empire's, um, the Arab lands in a way, and Arab societies. So um, under, under his reign, actually, we see the two initiatives in this direction in terms of actually civil, uh, this, uh, civilizing missions. Uh, first is basically the opening of the Ashiret schools, uh, Ashiret school actually at Beşiktaş, today's Kabataş Lisesi basically, which accepted the pupils of the Arabs and Kurdish Shays. Uh, and through this mission, actually, the Sultan aimed to create ties between the peripheral Arab provinces in Istanbul. And he believed that this would offer these notables to be an opportunity to breed a new generation of Arab leaders with a sense of autonomy unity organized around loyalty to the Sultan. And the second was the appointment of Arab officers and notables or notables to a higher rank positions in the court, the Ottoman court. Uh, and upon his this role of the constitution of eighteen uh, of the constitution in eighteen seventy eight, Abdul Hamid actually redefined his relationship with Islam as one of the fundamental ingredients of Ottomanism, along with his role as the caliph. So this new religious emphasis magnified the diplomatically biased position of the Arab provinces and its people towards the Sultan. And unlike previous configurations of the empire's political and military echelons, the new Ottoman governmental structure now assigned prominent roles to the Arabs. Uh, the Islamization policies of Abdul Hamid before 1908, privileging the Arab provinces, had been designed to extend to Eastern Arabia, Yemen, and Arabian Peninsula, as he wanted to create a web of religious loyalty against the European colonials, colonialist threat. Um, the Sultan actually believed that the idea of an ethnic nation and race was basically being preached by the British to divide the Turks and Arabs and inside uprising in Arabia, in Albania, and possibly in Syria. Thus, to counter this threat, he had applied policies uh, to strengthen the Arab presence at the governmental level. However, in the part of the Ottoman administration, there was a boiling discontent with the Arab bureaucrats. The tendency among Abdul Hamid's uh, opposition in diaspora, the Young Turks especially, to disparage Arabs as an inferior ethnic group was becoming more apparent. This bitterness was also apparent in the streets of the Ottoman capital, where it made itself probably evident in various popular forms. Expressions like no wooden tongues and no Arab pashas uh, started to circulate among the public, conveying the discontent uh, with the regime and more so the Arabs occupying its various administrative ranks. Um, following the revolution of 1908 and the emergence of the new government under Committee of Union and Progress, uh, and with a moment of relaxation of the heavy restriction on the press, it didn't take long for this bitter expression to find their way into the political cartoon space. Uh, the fervent propaganda against the bureaucrats, who were actually part of Abdul Hamid's absolute rule, now appeared in all kinds of media, with Arab administrators being the most actively targeted. So we actually see the illustrated papers and the posters uh, magnified the negative image of Arab by featuring cartoon narratives of these bureaucrats like Arab Izzet Pasha, Sidim and Najib uh, uh, Malhema Pashas, and their cunning, selfish acts. Um, as this uh, Committee of Union and Progress in the government removed the Sultan from his position, uh, these bureaucrats actually were all accused by the young Turk officers of uh, high treason and corruption. The hatred and humiliation uh, identified around these Arab bureaucrats 
uh, in these cartoons were ruthless and severe. Of course, uh, the escape of these Arab Pashas to Europe right before the revolution of 1908 prevented CUP uh, from putting them on actual trial for the crimes of which they were accused of. And moreover, moreover in the cartoons, um, it seems like their punishment was left to the public through imaginary means. So actually the cartoon space at that very moment in time served as an open, as a public court where they were sentenced to be held in the uh, memories of many as corrupt vampiric creatures, uh, judged and condemned by public opinion and executed even by the cartoonist brushes. So these visual illustrations um, were at the time were published uh, bilingually in Ottoman Turkish and French, but in some cases actually we see that they were not in Russian or in, in Armenian uh, added to these cartoons. I assume that actually I argued in the book that such propaganda actually aimed to reach all the Muslims and non-Muslim communities of the capital. Um, the increased presence of Arabs in the political cultural and social circles of Istanbul was perceived as a violation of the unspoken boundaries between the two ethnic groups, namely the Turks and the Arabs, which had been actually tacitly negotiated between the state and the Ottoman society. However, the boundaries are negotiated in a process that does not end with the provisional designation of a boundary. The boundary is arbitrary in character, temporary and changeable. And when it, when it is crossed or challenged in a society with such rigid perceptual lines, as was in the case with the Arabs in the Ottoman capital, it actually gives rise to complications. And amid the emotional upheaval of the revolution, the young Turks' prejudice against the Arabs revealed itself in an extreme demonized portrayals that set the Arab stereotype basically in stone for the years to come. When the um, Young Turks, though, fall from power at the end of World War I, so from the Ottoman ceasefire of 1918 until the point in 1925 where the League of Nations awards Mosul province to the British uh, in the Mandate of Iraq, this relationship between the Ottoman Empire and what's becoming the Turkish Republic and Arab peoples is unsettled. Like this, this boundary, this line that you talk about is, is moving and changing. So maybe we can talk a little bit now about how during this period of war and subsequent uh, negotiation, how do we see images, stereotypes of Arab peoples changing? Um. It was only during and after the trauma of World War One and the establishment of the new Turkish Republic that a more complex and symbolically laden image of the Arabs emerged in the cartoons and found a ground for the shaping of a national memory. Um, during the period uh, from 1923 to 1939, Turks actually encountered Arabs once again in various circumstances for Turkey, this was a time of nation building, and for most of the Arabs, it was the mandate period, where they were actually trying to both define their borders and shake off the colonial rule. And this time, unlike during the Ottoman rule, both parties actually were searching for a clearer ethnic and national definition. Actually, um, this series of encounters between the Arabs and the Turks, uh, some of them hostile, some of them more congenial, occurred simultaneously in many parts of the Middle East, including modern-day Iraq, uh, Syria, and Morocco. From 1916 on, the main focus of the Middle Eastern affairs, apart from the military campaign, was the continued dispute between uh, Britain and France over the interpretation of borders set by the Sykes-Picot Agreement of 1916 in the participation of the previous Ottoman territories. Um, we see the French actually demanded Greater Syria as promised 
while the British were determined to impose their supremacy in the region, especially in oil-rich areas near the Turkish border. And Turkey uh, mostly sat on the sidelines observing the developments uh, within its old territories of the Middle East and North Africa, except in two cases, though, that directly concerned Turkey's border, Mosul and Hatay. And that was actually Sanjak of Alexandretta. And these two disputes, actually, where Turkey had encountered the great powers of Europe once more after its establishment, after Lausanne, basically, which became instrumental for articulating the public's mind, in the public's mind, Turkey's uh, new position as a strong nation and within the power balance of this new regional order. So representation of Arab images as the other were contextualized around the grievances of the Great War and the Arab struggle against the mandate regime. And the image of the Arab came to epitomize the distinction from the uncivilized past that was an essential element of the Ottoman heritage. And during this time, actually, the Turkish cartoon space projected the Arab other in two time frames. One of which was, of course, as I mentioned, from 1922 to 1927, where actually the Arabs were engaged in projects for seeking national recognition against their mandate rulers. And this period covers pretty much the Muslim question, the struggle of uh, the struggle between King Hussein and Ibn Saud over Hijaz, the Yazidi rebellion of 1926 near the Turkish border and Syrian revolt against the mandatory French government from 1925 to 26. So under the influences of these events, out of the multiple typologies of the monolith Middle Eastern stereotype in the political cartoon, actually four emerged to dominate their representation in the first period of the Turkish Republican cartoon sphere. Uh, the first is the fiercely violent and cruel behavior of the Arabs, especially the puppet leaders of the Ottoman Arab provinces like Sherif Hussein of King Faisal, very much defined around the backstabbing of the Turks uh, within the World War, uh, First World War context. The second was actually the physical and the mental sloth and indulgence of the Arabs. The third is the uncivilized nature of Arabs emphasized within their struggle with progress over the forces of barbarism. And finally, the greed or heightened aspiration for financial gain. And until the 1930s, um, the Arab of the Middle East and North Africa were depicted in the cartoons in stereotypical outfits with their kefirs and garbs, ethnically indistinguishable. They were presented as primary nomad, primitive nomads with devilish or even monstrous looks with no identifiable differences in the representation of different ethnic and religious groups unless reading the titles of the, or the commentaries. Uh, from curse to Yazidis, the faces of the Middle Eastern were depicted in the same manner, creating a unified stereotype of an uncivilized savage. So it, it is almost impossible to differentiate between them. The cartoonists appropriated the Arab type from the romantic tradition of Karagos shadow theater, which served as the blueprint of these typologies, and redefined them as a vicious figure deprived of refined human features. The Arabs' traditional role actually expanded from that of a mere outsider and the cartoons actually placed them in an overtly open political context that transformed him, transformed him into a negative symbol of betrayal, who fully deserved his misfortune under the Western mandates. So the cartoonists stalked their audience's nation's feelings through this uh, within a binary uh, within binary of stereotypes of Arabs as lacking honor and decency and incapable of standing against expansionist Europe. Well, you know, if I can ask you just a, um, a follow-up question to this, which is, looking at this time period, do you see a... What is the, what is the time you particularly identify as the moment where Arabs fully become the non-national other? Is it during this period of the 
1927, that Arabs are fully otherized and non-nationalized? Or is there still the hint that they could be part of a Turkish national project during that time period? I'm just curious what you think about that. I think from the all the way to the 19, end of the 1920s, there is still um, a question mark. They do not really see the Arabs as like fully non-national, the ultimate other, non-national other of the Turkish self. That changes in the 1930s, especially after the conclusion of the Mosul question in 1928, I would say. And uh, also within the discussions of Sanjak, uh, inclusion of Sanjak into the borders of Turkey. And again, within this, again, within that, exactly within that discussion, there is a huge uh, period of propaganda uh, against the Arabs at the time. But at that moment in time, in the beginning of the 1930s, we kind of see the Arab as the as becoming a more, like kind of that border that psychological, perceptional border becoming bolder, in a way, between Turks and Arabs. And I will say that's kind of like the end of the 1920s. Mm-hmm. And then finally, that makes sense. And then finally, maybe you could say just a little bit more about this this final period in the 1930s during the Hatay crisis, which you've mentioned. Um, yeah, I mean, this this does seem to me... and in your book as well, it's a key moment where we see the stereotypes really crystallizing. So maybe can you discuss some of the aspects that we see in more detail, particularly as they are used to show the dispute between Turkey, France, nationalist politicians in Syria over this area? Yeah, I'd love to hear that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a crazy period. Um, well, the construction of modes of racial differentiation well, became particularly evident in the political cartoons of the late 1930s, when Turkey actually exploited anxiety over the growth of fascism in Europe uh, to coerce France into ceding the Alexandretta province, for example. Okay, the features actually emphasizing the racist depiction of Arabs marked the domination of the Turkish national self over its colonized neighbors whose post-impotence in self-representation actually observed as the product of colonial discourse. And this discourse was reflected in a visual symbolism in which the Arab turned into something more inhumane, a hybrid being even, set against the well-defined Turkish self. Um, this hybrid otherness was fixed in the Turkish public perception as a synonym of subversion a limited being, as Baba uh, describes it, which mimics his oppressor in his need to survive. So during the 1930s onward, the historical imagery of the Arab other in the cartoons was incorporated as a hybrid image, denoting the mixture of races that, that signified the antithesis of national purity. So apparently the previous two archetypes of Arab in Karagöz place, like white Arab and uh, black Arab, they emerged to become a single ultimate other in this period political cartoons, namely from actually 1930s to the, uh, the entire 1930s all the way to the end of 1939. Um, the stereotype of the sub-Saharan black Arab was already a familiar figure uh, from the traditional plots of the Karagas Shadow Theatre. And it's it casted uh, in the role of a loyal servant in the Ottoman household that actually entertained the Ottoman public for centuries. However, as 19th century colonial discourse emerged in its most exaggerated sense along the North Africa's shores, the Black Arab of Karagas stripped from its cultural position and became a subordinated object in the racial discourse. This wasn't really felt in the Turkish political cartoon spheres, not only in the, not until the 1930s, though. But the familiar image of the sub-Saharan African slave as a loyal but foolish and naive traveled through Tripoli and Cairo to the Ottoman Empire, now emerged in the political Turkish political cartoons more as a member of a savage tribe that needing civilizing. Uh, 
So it actually left that cloak of naivety behind, kind of shining more within its racial uh, definition. For scholars of nationalism, of course, a nation is a linguistic group, a cultural body, a race, uh, or a collective with a shared history. And between the two world wars, actually, this definition lent momentum to uh, revolutionary nationalist movements in Europe. Of course, we see first Italian fascism under Mussolini, followed by German fascism under Hitler, and then to other European countries. And in all these cases, actually, the Black Arab was consistently depicted as the emblem of the colonial exploitation and racism. And he was deprived of basic human dignity along along with his uh, difference in the presence. This, of course, was not a nationalist project that suddenly appeared. A force to scientifically prove the superiority of white men had begun to be made in the 18th century. And the growing interest in the science of anthropology, no doubt, contributed greatly to this nationalistic discourse within Turkey as well. Uh, and its means of reproduction. And of course, Turkish cartoonists were no exception in adjusting to this trend. What we see from the 1930s onward, basically, is the European, both in European political satire, including uh, the Turkish one, uh, heavily engaged in altering the physical features of their others with racial, for, racial formulations. For example, in this uh, the indistinguishable skin tone of the ex-Ottoman Arab will be treated for a darker skin tone in the cartoons of the 1930s. Um, other distinguishing facial elements, such as the lips, eyes, and even the attire, carry the similar racial connotation, where the supposedly genealogically superior were defined against the inferior. So such bold yet resentful illustrations of physical qualities provided a considerable stock of material for the cartoonists to use, especially with their capacity for developing a grotesque image of the targeted subject. At the age of the colonial system, of course, where pluralism clashed with the Europe's fascism, these binary signifiers became even more evident. The cartoonist uh, perception of the uh, of course, most of this, uh, the, emer- the emergence of the Black Arab in the early Republican Turkish historical thesis, the racial formulations of the 1930s were overlaid with the white Arab stereotype of Karagos place, as Alexandra the dispute, to, uh, dispute took its place at the center of the Turkish political and diplomatic agenda. The Turkish state launched a strategic propaganda war to mobilize public opinion against the Syrian Arabs' claim over the district, taking every possible occasion in cartoons to attack the image of the Middle Easterner as an incapacitated, colonized other with no proper means of ruling a Turkish-populated land. So the cartoonist perception of the new foreign policy during the early years of the Republic was characterized is cautious, realistic, and generally aimed at preserving the status quo and the hard-won victory of 1923. And, of course, after the resolution of the Mosul dispute with Britain, the one issue Turkey and France clashed over in the 1930s was the district of Alexandretta. When France's mandatory government promised full independence to Syria, including the Alexandretta province in 1936, Turkey actually decided to claim the province for its own, arguing that it was part of the National Pact of 1920. Turkey's claim over the Alexandretta region of northeastern Syria continued to be asserted in the League of Nations, while Turkey engaged in considerable media propaganda from 1936 to 1937. Syria, on the other hand, along with Lebanon, which was under French mandatory rule at the time, provided popular support for the revolt uh, in Palestine until it became actively involved. And the Turkish cartoonists were more interested in Syria's involvement in the revolt than the Palestinian cause. And the revolt theme attracted the attention of the cartoonists who launched a vulgar propaganda campaign against the Syrian Arabs 
tending to comply with the government policies. So the Arab image actually offered a mixture of racial and ethnic signifiers joined in the creation of an ultimate non-national other. Whether we make this representation as the products of historical myth or treat them as satirical grotesque, they actually represent the emergence of a form of social and political temporality that was repetitious and indeterminate. The resentful circulation of the Arab type and the political uncertainty over the border issues with Syrian Arabs under the French mandate by the Turkish political cartoon press contributed in a complex temporality of social contingency to the creation of the Turkish national self. This chain of communication with the political cartoon press and its visually semantic content were transformed in transmission through exaggeration, magnification, and imprecision. And without any significant difference, all Arab nations were eventually represented as nearly identical, bearing the racial marks of colonial discourse as their common denominator. Um, That's basically kind of the most attractive part of the book, where you actually see how within the, the the dispute of Alexandretta and within this definitions of hybridity and so on, uh, we see the demonization uh, of the Arab as the ultimate other uh, within a mixture of, within this hybrid of blackness and whiteness, you know, uh, like carrying the, the physio- physiological uh, features of the black and at the same time, having the cunning characteristic or the, of the imperial powers, in quotation, of course, I'm using this, that, that cunning features, uh, untransferable features of the white uh, whiteness, in a way, mixed within this uh, hybrid image of the Arab other. And that was kind of the typology pretty much promoted uh, at the time within the propaganda by the press against the French mandate concerning the case of the Alexandretta and its inclusion to the borders of Turkey. That's kind of that's kind of the thing, you know, uh, in the 1930s, that bringing that fascist racial features uh, up on the surface and kind of implementing that uh, visual uh, representation into the minds. Uh, of the Turkish audience, you know, and these images actually stick. Uh, they reside within the in the minds of the of the people of the public. And today, when we look at all this, you know, um, the hatred and the, the, this reaction towards the the Syrian immigrants, you can see uh, you can see the, the resonance of these images coming back to life again, you know. It's funny within this nationalist discourse, we do not really talk about the Syrians or the Jordan. We do not call them as the Syrians or the Jordanians or the Afghanis or this and that. They are all Arabs in the perception of the Turks today. And all these images, of course, are still alive, becoming alive, constantly reproduced through various means. Uh, Political cartoons are, of course, one means. Literature and so on um, as means of production. The irony of doing a podcast about a book about cartoons is that we can't show images. And one thing that, I mean, one one particular strength of the book, I think, is there's a you do a very good job of curating images such that you have particularly evocative ones and including very good analysis of those images. And though it's you know not the, the main thing, you have some very good um, points where you've put together, um, how can I say, collections of the images together so you can see the way the images, the different images from the different cartoons emerge as one whole kind of image of an other. And I, I really like that, especially in the final chapters where you show these images and show them compared with one another. So I think that's a very good thing that readers will 
hopefully go and see since our voices can't quite capture it, right? Oh, thank you so much. Actually, I, I have an incredible uh, collection of Arab political, political cartoons from the mid 19th century to all the way to the 1950s. It's about close to a, more than 1800s, actually. And it was kind of a challenge for me to choose between them, you know, among them, in order to include, you know, uh, in the book and considering how publishing um, uh, visuals and the, the, the cartoons is quite expensive in terms of publishing. I had serious limitations and I tried to do my best actually uh, picking up the cartoons. Yeah, I mean, well, I think that's uh, that's an impressive element that I, yeah, I, I hope listeners will go and check it out and see that because, you know, there's no way we can do justice to that aspect of it. Let me ask, just by finishing asking you the final question I always ask, which is what projects writers are working on now, if, if any. Uh, yeah, of course, you know, for an academician, it's never an ending story. It's just like, um, actually, I have two... Um, two projects which are quite independent from each other. One is basically, in a way, it's the continuation of what I'm doing in the book. Uh, actually, I'm trying to look at the... Um, uh, actually, I'm trying to uh, look at the post, uh, offer a post-colonial approach to the power relation under the French and British mandates through popular culture. Um, and my second project is as I said, it's more of a lifetime project in which I intend to write a comprehensive biography of Adifete Okrear, a prominent liberal in the making of the modern Turkey. So these are basically kind of my um, upcoming projects for the future. Well, I mean, both sound quite interesting to me and hopefully to other people listening as well. So <laughs> good, good luck with those. And I hope to talk to you again about those. Um, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Ruben, for having me here today.